Okay, everyone. So, uh, welcome once again. Uh, and always nice to start off with the homage to the Triple Gem and the Meta Suit. I kind of puts you in the right mood, especially if you understand what it, it means. Uh, so, it's nice to have the English translation there on the screen, which is, which is great. Uh, so, uh, now time for a uh, Dhamma talk. I'm going to talk today about how to distinguish real from fake Dhamma. <laughs> And uh, this was a topic that was given to me actually quite a while ago when I was uh, in the United States that talked about this. Uh, and I thought it would be a suitable topic uh, tonight because uh, this is always very controversial. Who teaches the real Dhamma? Who does not? Uh, how do we know if someone is teaching the real deal? Or maybe it is a bit dodgy. Uh, sometimes it can be very difficult to distinguish. Uh, some people are very charismatic, some people are very convincing, it may seem like they are teaching the right thing. Uh, I've just been teaching a nine or eight day retreat or whatever it was. Uh, what did I say? Did I say things that were kind of the real deal or was it a bit dodgy or was it kind of, you know, what, what was the standard of the content of my talk? Uh, so today I'm going to justify why everything I said was exactly correct. And <laughs> so this is the way it usually goes, right? Uh, and uh, this is uh, surprisingly important in Buddhism, uh, this idea of actually knowing whether things are real Dhamma or not, uh, whether they are compatible with the teachings of the Buddha, uh, or whether they actually turn out to be a bit kind of on the, on the edge of what is acceptable. Uh. And the um, kind of my favorite um, uh, kind of point to show how dangerous it can be uh, this was from a conference, a Buddhist conference that we had in Perth, I think 2016 or something like that. And uh, at this conference, uh, one speaker yeah, after the other, and they came from various walks of life and their various parts of uh, uh, society in Australia, also from overseas. Uh, and almost everyone, uh, they had a quote from the Buddha. <laughs> right? So there was like a quote, quotation marks, and then it said, the Buddha underneath, right? Uh, and I kind of watched these quotes as they came up, one after the other. Uh, now, I happened to be the last person on uh, the speakers list of that conference. Uh, and so when I kind of got, got up on the stage, the very first thing I said, I said, I've been following these so-called Buddha quotes uh, throughout this conference, and not a single one of them, uh, because I know my suttas fairly well, not a single one of them is actually a quote from the Buddha. Uh, and so, and that was kind of very interesting. Yeah? And I realized at that point how careful you have to be to actually, you know, whether something really is from the Buddha or not. Now, sometimes it may not matter because sometimes it may just be an alternative way of looking at the world. It may be more modern kind of outlook or whatever. Yeah, it may not matter, but sometimes it may matter. Sometimes these so-called Buddha quotes may actually be misleading. They may kind of lead us in the wrong direction and they may be really, really problematic. And uh, after this conference, I discovered that there is a Buddhist website uh, that you may have heard about called Fake Buddha Quotes. Uh, yeah, and this is like this uh, investiga investigative journalist. It's not a journalist, it's an investiga investigative Buddhist monk. Uh, and he kind of takes on uh, people uh, writing into him saying, well, this, I've you know, found this on the internet. It's supposed to be from the Buddha. Is it really from the Buddha? And then he investigates whether it is or not. And he has this long list of fake Buddha quotes. Uh, and then he has some real Buddha quotes as well, right? Not every so-called Buddha quote is fake, but many, 90% or something are. It's kind of quite a bit disturbing sometimes. Uh, so during this talk today, uh, I'm going to put you to the test. Uh, 
<laughs> are you ready for that? I've got some of these quotes. Some of them are going to be fake. Some of them are going to be real. Yeah, I'm going to see how sharp you are in the knowledge of the Buddhist teachings. And it's just for a bit of fun. If you don't want to take part, that's fine. We'll see, see what happens. But before I go and test you and kind of give you an A, B, C or F, and we'll see, see what happens, what kind of grade you end up with in this thing here. Before I put you to the test, I'm going to give you some guidelines, yeah? how to know whether something is a real quote from the Buddha or not. And then we put you to the test, and then we will, after the test, we will then uh, talk a bit more about what are real, what is real Buddhism, and what is not. Now, one of some of the things about the Buddhist teachings, uh, and one of the things that uh, is a very obvious giveaway if something is fake, uh, is that if it sounds too modern. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it has been invented in California in 2015 or whatever, right? <laughs> and uh, that is always kind of a, a giveaway. One of the beautiful things about the Buddhist teachings uh, is that they are so perennial. Uh, perennial means that they are always valid. Uh, they don't have a use-by date. They don't belong to one particular society or one particular period of history. They're always valid. They're applicable to all people at all times. And this is what is so beautiful about these teachings. Because what that means is that as Buddhism spreads out into the world, as it comes to Australia, yeah, to far, far away on the kind of the southern hemisphere, it is still valid. It is still applicable. It is still useful to us. And this is one of the things that make it special. If Buddhism is too modern, if it fits kind of with our modern views and our modern ideas of psychology, our modern ideas of philosophy, our modern cultural references, what, what it, whatever, there's something limited about it. It is no longer applicable in the broadest possible sense. And that to me is problematic because these teachings should be about the deeper psychological reality of human beings. And these are universal characteristics, regardless of culture, regardless of history, regardless of all of these things that seem to divide us on the surface. It's actually wonderful that we are far less, when you look into the human heart and the human mind, we are far more unified than sometimes the world will have it. And this is a great way of actually creating a bit of sense of unity in the world. But the, one of the things that always impressed me with the Buddha and Buddhism is precisely this idea that we're dealing with a religion or a teaching that is universal, that is perennial. Yeah, and that is very, very different from almost all other religions in the world, almost all other philosophies in the world. The vast majority of religions and philosophy, they arose in a particular historical context and they belong to a particular tribe, right? It was our God, our God. It's very parochial. It's very kind of small-minded. It belongs to our society, yeah? This is our God. He protects us. The neighboring tribe, they have their God. And we, just as we fight each other among the humans, the gods up there fight each other, yeah? So whoever is kind of the strongest God up in the heavenly realm. And so there is this uh, sense that religion very often is about our personal relationship with our God uh, and it's small and it's kind of narrow in, in content. Uh. But in Buddhism you move to a very different kind of view of the world and this is what makes Buddhism so powerful, one of many, many things uh, that makes Buddhism almost unique in the world. It is universal. Uh. It is not narrowed down to one particular tribe or one particular people. Uh. It is not about the Indians in ancient India two and a half thousand years ago. 
it is about them too, but not just about them. It is not about their relationship to the Buddha. And when you start to read the suttas, you start to look at how the Buddha expressed his Dhamma, he actually says this in the suttas. Yeah, one of the things that we have at the very beginning of Buddhism, we have the idea of the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana. Yeah, that's the first sutta of the Buddha. And Dhamma Chakka Pavatana means the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma, huh? the wheel of the teaching. Yeah. And this idea of setting something in motion, the wheel of the Dhamma, means that this is something that will kind of keep on going in the world. Yeah, you're setting, you're starting something, something that is so compelling and so powerful that once it gets going in the world, it kind of carries on from one generation to the next, from one century to the next, from one culture to the next, from one nationality to the next. And it doesn't stop because the force and the power of that Dhamma is so great that when people hear it, they say, yeah, wow, this is it. Just like we do here, right? Wow, this is the Dhamma. Okay, let's pass it on to the next generation. Let's practice these teachings. Uh, let's realize their content in our own experience. Uh, and then as you do that, you pass it down the line. Uh, and this is what the Buddha knew when he started teaching people around him in that society. He knew that he was setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. He says that in the suttas. Uh, and because he knew that, uh, he knew that he would have to phrase uh, the Dhamma in a way that is not peculiar to the Indian context, uh, peculiar to that historical context, but in a universal way, uh, so that people even today can understand these teachings. Uh, so he specifically phrased his Dhamma in this universal way, uh, so that uh, anyone in the world can relate to these things. Uh, and this is why when you open the suttas in the present day, it doesn't feel all that alien. It doesn't really feel, sometimes it can feel like that if you look at the kind of narrative content. But if you focus on the teachings of the Buddha, they are not very tied to a particular place or historical context. The Buddha knew what he was doing. He started something that would carry on into the future. And so he phrased this teaching in universal terms. So if you... And actually, there's something very powerful about that. I like to make this point when I teach retreats, for example. There's something extraordinarily powerful about that because sometimes we think that these teachings, they were given to the people around the Buddha. They were his real disciples. They were the ones who took the Buddha as their teacher. But if the Buddha phrases this in a way to make it valid for future generations because he wanted us to understand also in the present day, it means that the Buddha did not just teach those people, but he's also our teachers, teacher because he had us in mind in a very literal sense. Yeah, he knew about people in the future. And so actually the Buddha is your teacher in a very real way, especially when you go back to the suttas. Uh, you open those suttas and you feel that you're connecting with the Buddha through those teachings. Uh, he is your teacher. Uh, and what that means, if we start to read these suttas, these teachings by the Buddha, they come alive in a way that otherwise they would not. Uh, it's like, if this is my teacher and he is now teaching me, uh, it's like you start to get goosebumps, right? This is the greatest spiritual master in human history. That's a bit of Buddhist propaganda for you, but it's true, right? <laughs> it's true. As far as I'm concerned, it's true. And so here he is talking to you. 
directly because he knew that there will be people in the future listening to these teachings. Uh, and you start reading the suttas in a new way uh, because you don't not, no longer read them as something alien or foreign belonging to somewhere else. Uh, no, these things belong to you. You are a direct disciple of the Buddha through these suttas. Uh, and then you read them more carefully. Uh, you read them looking for the content in an entirely new way. Uh, you ask yourself, well, what does this actually mean, right? You investigate these things in a deeper way. You carry them away with you after you have heard these teachings. You look at them more carefully. You, start to, you try to figure out what is actually going on here. And then they come alive in your own life. Then you start to apply them and use them in your own existence. And then they start to bear real fruits, which leads to more interest in those teachings, going back to the suttas again, and gradually building up this powerful force in your life that propels you forward. In which direction? Towards happiness and towards the reduction in suffering. And what a wonderful thing that is. And so, the idea here yeah, is to kind of uh, understand that these teachings are perennial in this way. Uh, and so when you see a so-called Buddha quote that kind of quotes too much from uh, uh, whatever, modern psychology, or it sounds too good to be true, uh, then probably it is too good to be true. Uh. <laughs> this does not mean that the language can be modern, that language can sometimes be modern, uh, because sometimes a translator prefers to use kind of modern jargon or modern words, uh, yeah? and that is fine, uh, but it is the ideas, uh, the cultural references, uh, the historical layers or whatever, this is what has to be perennial, uh, and when you see it perennial in this way, you know you're likely to be on the right track, uh, quite likely these are real uh, Buddhist teachings. Uh. So this is the first one, right? How to recognize uh, real Buddhist teachings. Uh, the second thing here, and uh, uh, this is that uh, these teachings are usually not personal. Uh, yeah, they're not kind of about individual people or groups of people or nationalities or anything like that. Uh, they're not given to individuals as such, uh, but they are, give, they are impersonal and again, universal in character. Uh, and sometimes we seem to think that uh, the Buddha was a master in tailoring his teachings to individuals. Yeah, they, are, they have skillful means uh, and he would look at you and he would read your mind. Would you like to have your mind read? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of scary, isn't it? Sometimes we think it's actually not scary at all because Buddha knows all minds and your mind is just like all other minds. Yeah, and that's, that you don't have to be worried at all. And if you think about killing someone, he's used to people thinking about killing people. So you're, you're all right, even if you have a really kind of uh, brutal ideas in your mind. But uh, so we have this idea that the Buddha kind of gives very specific teachings to individuals. Uh, and sometimes he does. Uh, sometimes people come to the Buddha and they ask, please, Venerable Sir, please give me a teaching for me so I can kind of go off into the forest and meditate. And the Buddha will then give uh, teachings to that person. Uh, but uh, when you look at the teachings that he gives, uh, they are just extracts from the Dhamma in general. Uh, Right? They are not specifically, they're not kind of unique teachings for that person. He just takes a particular part of the Dhamma and then applies that. And the reason for that is because we are all the same. Yeah, we have all the same kind of defilements. We have all the same kind of problems. We have the same kind of mental faculties and mental abilities and things that we need to develop and things that we need to avoid. We are pretty boring bunch, you know? The world is far less exciting than you think it is. You travel to 
faraway countries around the world, wherever you go in the world, people are essentially the same. On the surface, you know, okay, you get this kind of food, that kind of food, you know, you get kind of these kind of monuments, that kind of monuments, but actually look a little bit below the surface and you realize people are essentially the same. And this is why it is possible for the Buddha to use his teachings. Yeah, same teachings again and again. They're not really personalized. They're always universal and impersonal in nature. And this is the other thing. When something sounds too personalized, this is valid for modern Australian culture, right? Okay, wait a minute. This is too personal for this culture. Or this is valid in Japan or valid in the United States or whatever. Okay, this probably is a bit dodgy. It's too localized. It lacks that sense of being universal again, applying to all humanity across the border. So this is another kind of important point about the Dhamma. The third point about the Dhamma, which I like to bring out, is that the Dhamma is often very simple and very straight to the point. It is not very fancy. The Buddha's point is to deliver a message, a message about happiness, a message about overcoming suffering, a message about joy and peace and all of these wonderful things in life. That is the Buddha's message. And to be able to deliver that message successfully, he has to be clear. He has to kind of give the message without too much embellishment, too much floridness and all of these kind of things. So he kind of, and this is what you find in the suttas. Generally speaking, the word of the Buddha is very simple, very straight to the point, not very hard to understand. And sometimes people think, oh, the sutta is too difficult to read. I'd rather read some kind of modern teachers or whatever. But actually, the word of the Buddha is far more down to earth than many, many modern teachers. Much easier to understand. The modern teacher may be very beautiful in the way they are phrased and kind of using interesting words and all this kind of thing. But the word of the Buddha is far more precise far more easy to understand when you put it all together uh, and you kind of look at it with care, care, then it actually is, uh, to my mind, far more easy and simple and straight to the point uh, than almost any other teaching. Uh. And this is also one of the things that distinguishes the early Buddhist suttas coming from the Buddha to much of later Buddhist literature. Uh. Later Buddhist literature is often very fancy, it is often very florid, it often has all kinds of beings, it has like 10 pages of just kind of miracles and all of these kind of things starting off. It kind of embellishes the myth of the Buddha, makes the Buddha into some kind of superhuman being, which actually to me detracts from the teachings because it makes the Buddha more distant from us. He no longer relates to us in exactly the same way. But the early suttas are very ordinary. The Buddha comes across as pretty much an ordinary human being, especially before his awakening. The Buddha had defilements, the Buddha had wrong views, the Buddha was attaching to things in the world. He basically had the same kind of problems that we had. And because he had the same problems that we have in the present day, it means that he was looking for solutions in the same place we should look for solutions. And that is why his teachings are so interesting to us, precisely because he is a human being looking at the same problems, trying to find the same kind of solutions. So this is one way in which the suttas are really down to earth. The Buddha is a human being just like us. Okay, once he became the Buddha, you can argue if you wish that he wasn't human in the ordinary sense anymore. But prior to becoming the Buddha, he certainly was human, very, very similar to what we are in the present day and any time throughout history. 
And uh, that is very, very, uh, to me, very important. And again, it is one of those things that make the Buddhist teachings pretty much unique in human history. Most religions in the world, they have some kind of supernatural or something really mystical and marvelous and strange. Buddhism, again, we are down to earth. But it's not just the fact that the Buddha was human, but it's also the nature of his teachings as well. They're also very down to earth, right? When we talk about Buddhist meditation, I'm almost eating the microphone. Be be careful about that. It's not good for my digestion. So (laughs) So one of the... um, uh, things about Buddhism, yeah, look, for example, the meditation that is most common in the Buddhism is mindfulness of breathing, yeah, yeah, following your breath, the breath is one of those most natural things in the universe, uh, there's nothing fancy about it, there's no kind of uh, massive imaginations and kind of uh, imagining this or imagining that, it's kind of down to some very basic uh, realities of life, the, de- the breath is kind of grounding, yeah? it doesn't take you off and kind of make potentially makes you go crazy because you're looking at all of these kind of you know weird things in the world uh, it comes down to something very ordinary and simple that is always available to us uh. and this again is kind of one of the beauties of the buddha's teachings uh. and the buddha says himself that this is the um, this is the meditation i use before my awakening uh. this led to my awakening he specifically says uh, and this is the mindfulness of breathing here uh. so the buddha's teachings are really simple uh. Yeah, and then what are the things that lead to that mindfulness of breathing? Well, it's morality. Morality in the broader sense of kindness. So kindness is the foundation for the Buddhist path. So you can argue that Buddhism is about two things, kindness and mindfulness of breathing. And that is really all there is to it. Isn't that wonderful? So simple. You don't have to worry about dependent origination. Yeah, you don't have to worry about all of these complex things. What is the meaning of nama rupa? Oh, name and form. What exactly does that refer to? And of course, you can mess up your mind big time if you do that. I ended up the retreat that we had by talking about consciousness and name and form and how they relate to each other. And I was a bit concerned. I bamboozled everyone, including myself, by ending, by ending up the retreat in such a kind of complicated ideas. But actually, if you're interested in those things, great. And they can be good fun and they can lead to greater appreciation of the Buddha's teachings. And they can lead to a sense of confidence that these teachings really work, that they have a kind of holistic view of the world, that kind of everything really comes together in a nice way. But it's not really required. And for those of you who already have enough faith and confidence and all you want to do is to live the path, yeah, Kindness and mindfulness of breathing is really all you need. A bit of right view is also helpful. I should add that, of course. But um, (laughs) you have the right view already, right? That's why you are here. So you kind of get that right view sorted out. So that is the beauty of the Buddhist teaching. Simple, straight to the point. Nothing fancy here. You can actually forget about all of those fancy things. We don't need to be very philosophical or anything like that. Have a good heart, and if you consistently have a good heart, your meditation is going to be very powerful as a consequence. So that is the uh, the third thing about uh, the uh, uh, the Buddha's teaching. The fourth thing that I would just emphasize today, and that is that the Dhamma is not worldly in nature. The Dhamma is spiritual in nature. And this is maybe the most important of all of these points that we're talking about today. 
when you read the suttas, they're always pointing you in one direction only, towards the spiritual path, towards the joys and happiness that are outside of our ordinary worldly existence. And sometimes you read so-called Buddha quotes and you think, this is just too worldly, yeah? How to have a good family. I mean, it's important to have a good family relationships, but that is not usually what the Buddha focuses on. How to enjoy your life to the maximum, right? Sometimes you think these quotes, or this is how you enjoy your life to the maximum. Um, true if it is the spiritual life, but not true if it refers to worldly life. So the Buddha's teaching always have this kind of slightly otherworldliness about it. The idea of going beyond our ordinary life. Because our ordinary life, we know it already, it is fraught with problems, fraught with all kinds of things. And the reason why we come to the Buddhist teaching is to elevate us a little bit out of that ordinary existence. That is the whole point. So Buddhism should have a slightly otherworldly and spiritual feeling. That is what we should expect. And if some things are too ordinary, okay, maybe be a little bit skeptical about it. So now I have given you some criteria by which to judge whether we have real Buddhism or not. So now I'm going to put you to the test. So are you ready for that? <laughs> this is a bit of fun and games, right? We don't want to... I, I, I like a little bit innovation in my Dhamma talks. Not too much innovation. It has to be kind of aligned with the suttas, but a little bit of innovation. I wonder what the Buddha would have said with this. I might, maybe he would have told me off and said, get, you know, don't do that. I, I'm, yeah. Anyway, so this is um, so. Let's see what you what you think about this. Uh, so these are some of the uh, things that I picked out of this fake Buddha quotes. Uh, you can't see. You can't. <laughs> no, sorry. I apologize. I I'm being very naughty. <laughs> okay. So this is this is one of these quotes, right? And it, all, all of these remember all of these quotes. They have had the Buddha. Yeah, underneath it, pretending to be the Buddha, Buddha quote. And so um, uh, this is the first one. I, I, this is very obvious. But anyway, I, I'll just start off in a kind way towards you. So have compassion for all beings, rich and poor alike. Each has their own suffering. Some suffer too much, others too little. <laughs> so who thinks that is a fake Buddha quote? Yeah, you're very wise. That's excellent. Well done. <laughs> no one has ever heard of anyone who suffers too little, right? That's just completely un-Buddhist, and it just doesn't work. Okay, another one. As you walk and eat and travel, be where you are. Otherwise, you will miss most of your life. Fake? Okay, again, yeah, you, you are excellent. So this is what I feel. See, yeah, you know intuitively what is Buddhism, right? You have this feeling. You can kind of tell straight away here. All things are perfect exactly as they are. Fake? <laughs> um, certainly the Buddha never says that, right? Uh, this is kind of a modern, maybe that's kind of some kind of new age teaching, but not certainly not Buddhism. Yeah, the Buddha talks about dukkha. That's kind of he's famous for that. Uh, and sometimes we need to remind people there is sukkha as well in life, uh, unless we kind of get uh, uh, labeled as pessimistic Buddhists. Uh, Okay, next one. A sweet friendship refreshes the soul. Fake? Oh. Fake. <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty obvious, right? It's kind of a giveaway. The word soul is kind of, yeah, that's kind of, okay. All descriptions of reality are temporary hypotheses. Fake? 
Yeah, it's fake. Yeah, because, uh, of course, the Buddha has ideas about reality, right? There are certain things that are true. The Buddha talks about Yatabhut and Anadasana, seeing things according to reality. There are certain things that are real. Yes, there are things that are temporary, but there also are things that are real ways of looking at the world. Okay, next one. Believe nothing, no matter where you read it or who said it, no matter if I have said it, unless it agrees with your own reasons and your own common sense. Fake? Yes, fake. Another fake one. But this one is getting closer, right? Now we are getting closer to what the Kalama Sutta, the idea that you, you shouldn't kind of just believe things in the world. But it does not mean that you should never believe anything. This is also kind of wrong. Once you have a degree of confidence in the Buddha's teachings, once you have listened to what he has to say, you build up a degree of confidence and faith, and then you start to have faith in the Buddha. So if you are a Buddhist, it is reasonable to have a degree of confidence in things like rebirth. Why? Because the Buddha said it. People think that having faith in what the Buddha said two and a half thousand years ago is kind of crazy about rebirth. But remember, the Buddha is a teacher like any other teacher in the world, except that he's far more powerful, wise, all of these kind of things. And when you go to school, do you believe what the teacher says? Generally, yes, right? So if you believe an ordinary school teacher, you should definitely believe the Buddha, right? So if the Buddha says there is rebirth, Yay, okay, I'll, I'll, at least I'll consider that very carefully before I reject it. The other thing, which is a giveaway here, is that believe nothing, uh, no matter where you read it. Well, there was no re much reading at the time of the Buddha, so that's another kind of giveaway here. If, if it, no matter where you saw it on TV, that would have been another giveaway here. <laughs> okay, so chaos is inherent in all compounded things. Uh, strive on with diligence. Fake? You say fake? Yes? Okay, one fake there, another fake over here. Any more fakes? A few more fakes? Okay, wow, you are so wise. So this is, again, getting close to what the Buddha is talking about, right? It's, if you don't get it right, uh, I will forgive you, because, <laughs> because this is not so obvious. But the Buddha doesn't say chaos is inherent in all compounded things. What the Buddha says is that all compounded things are subject to vanishing or subject to impermanence. That is what he says. The world is not really chaotic. The world exists according to certain laws. One of the laws is the law of dependent origination. Right? So there is a lawfulness in the world. It is impermanent, true, but there's a lawfulness to these things. So there's a slightly problematic this one here because if it is complete chaos how can you even practice a path yeah there must be a structure in the world for the path to be possible okay so now getting ready for this one set your heart on doing good do it over and over again and you will be filled with joy Wow, this is, uh, this is amazing. You are, this is kind of really, that, that actually this is uh, pretty much a true Buddha quote, right? Uh, yeah, so that's really, that's wonderful. This is, I think, taken from the uh, Dhammapada, I believe. And uh, it is a little bit of a modern kind of translation. So maybe you haven't heard it exactly translated like that. Uh, but essentially, this is exactly from the suttas. Uh, and it's a beautiful quote, right? Uh, I actually was so happy when I saw that. I thought, wow, I've got to bring that one out. Uh, Set your heart on doing good. Do it over and over again, and you will be filled with joy. 
This is kind of the idea of kindness, right? Always be kind. Always take every opportunity. Uh, every word that comes out of your, uh, your mouth uh, should be kind, uh, caring, uh, compassionate, gentle, truthful, uh, meaningful, uh, bringing harmony in the world. Uh, yeah? Anyway. Uh, last one for today. Nothing can harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. Uh, all right, you are a very well-educated bunch. Congratulations. Uh, you got everything right, every single one. Uh, and uh, what that shows you uh, is that uh, uh, it is not that difficult uh, to have an idea. Yeah? So when you see Buddha quotes in the world, when you see kind of when you go to these kind of conferences, I'm not sure if I would recommend this conference, but if you ever go to these conferences uh, and you see Buddha quote, the Buddha, be skeptical. Trust your own judgment. Uh, yeah? Don't go with the crowd because the crowd will say, yay, Buddha quote, wonderful. Don't be, be the educated Buddhist that you are uh, and follow your own judgment because you have an idea uh, of what is going on. Uh. And um, it was very interesting. I was, uh, when I was in the US recently, I was in California as well in Silicon Valley, which was kind of cool. I've never really been much to the US before, so it was kind of nice. Uh, and it turns out Americans are much like people everywhere else. Uh. <laughs> which is kind of nice. When you read the news, you get all these distorted feelings about other countries. Uh. But when you go to places, uh, you get a feeling for the people. And usually people are people. Uh. And that's kind of nice to see. Especially if you're a Buddhist monk, uh, people always treat you with a lot of kindness. And that's kind of one of the great benefits of being a monastic, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, when I was there, I went to this Buddhist center, one of the kind of larger Buddhist centers uh, in Silicon Valley in a place called Redwood City. Yeah. And, uh, and it was kind of a large room downstairs where they gave Dhamma talks, and then there were some offices upstairs. Uh, and upstairs, that was where the, kind of the head of this group was uh, based. His name is Gil Fronsdal, uh, and he has done some translations of the Dhammapada and all of these kind of things. Uh, and he also has a Norwegian background, yeah? So I kind of, okay, so we kind of got on really well. We spoke Norwegian with each other, although his Norwegian was a bit dodgy, I have to say. Uh, li <laughs> living abroad for too long. Uh, and he had this poster on the wall, right? Uh, and they had a picture of the Buddha, and it had this quote, and it had the Buddha underneath. Uh, it was, a, you know, it was supposed to be a Buddha quote, right? Uh, and the, and the uh, quote was, uh, "Pretty sure I never said that." Uh. <laughs> and I thought, "Wow, this is a, such a good one. This is the best one, right? Uh, it is not taken from the suttas, but if there's going to be a fake Buddha quote, that's the best fake Buddha quote I have seen. This is a really, really good one." <laughs> So uh, anyway, so you get an idea yeah, of what actually are fake Buddha quotes in this world and what are not. Uh, I want to go a little bit further here. I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, about where we find the real teachings of the Buddha. Yeah, this is actually very simple and something I talked about many times before. Uh, but I want to kind of reiterate it briefly because it's a very important point. Uh, because very often we are presented with... Uh, teachings, uh, and they are said to be suttas, yeah, the word of the Buddha. Uh, and it's not just people who are born in the West who are confused about this. People who are born in traditional Buddhist countries are also confused about this. Uh, I have traditional Buddhist countries, oh, but this is in the suttas. I say, no, it's not in the suttas. I know the suttas really well. This is from the commentary. This is from the Jataka tale. This is from the stories of the Buddha's lifetime. It is not from the suttas. Uh, 
The suttas are the things we call the word of the Buddha, yeah, what the Buddha spoke. And that which is not the suttas are later developments that have been added later on, like commentaries and stories and all of these kind of things. So to be able to find out what the suttas are, it is good to start with some of those things uh, yeah, that are from the most kind of early layers of uh, discourses uh, and see, well, how does the Buddha himself uh, recommend uh, that we should distinguish the real from the false? Uh, and one of the things that the Buddha says, he says that, well, the thing that you should take as your teaching after I pass away is the Dhamma and Vinaya that I have proclaimed to you. Yeah, and so what he is saying, and this is a very important point right there, when we decide what is real Buddhism, it is the word of the Buddha that is primary. All other things in Buddhism are secondary here. It doesn't mean we should reject all other things, but it means that the word of the Buddha is where we should kind of find the final answer to what is real Buddhism. And this is important because too often I hear, oh, it doesn't matter where it comes from as long as it is true or whatever. But how on earth do you know if it is true if you have no idea where it comes from? A large part of what is called later Buddhism was handed down by anonymous people. Yeah, people, we don't know who they are. They wrote this kind of thing that sometimes they seem really fancy and really amazing or whatever. But they are anonymous. Can we trust anonymous authors to present us with the real Dhamma? And the answer is, we just don't know. We have no idea. Maybe it is good, maybe it is bad. Sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish the real teachings from the dodgy teachings. And sometimes it is therefore better to leave it to one side. Yeah, and in the Theravada tradition, it is obvious that a lot of things we have in the Theravada tradition are, are later than not the word of the Buddha, like the Abhidhamma. Yeah, it is it doesn't mean that all the Abhidhamma is wrong, but it means we don't really know who authored the Abhidhamma. We don't know why it was authored. We don't know whether it, you know, it has any adds anything to our understanding. And I would say it detracts from our understanding. Why? Because it is too philosophical. It is too much uh, about building up kind of systems, building up things that are really not all that relevant to our practice. And so I say it can be detract from our understanding of the Dhamma. The Jataka tales is another one. The Jataka tales are often very charming stories, but very often they are not Buddhist at all. Sometimes the Jataka tales are anti-Buddhist. Yeah, they have morals in there. They have ideas in there that actually go against morality and kindness. Yeah, like the Buddha-to-be kind of giving away his children and wife. What is that about, giving away your children and wife? Is that kind of the right thing to do? Of course not. And yet sometimes we celebrate these things as if they are great acts of renunciation when really they are inappropriate to do. And so sometimes we need, again, it's actually very useful to remember this distinction where we find the real Buddhist teachings, to go back to those, take those as the gold standard, and then we have something that we actually can rely on and everything else can then be understood in light of that gold standard. We have something safe, we have a safe harbor, if you like, where we can, fight, where we can judge whether something is real teaching or not. 
Now, in that same place where the Buddha says you should follow the Dhamma in Vinaya that I have laid down, he also says in that sutta, and this, by the way, is the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, the 16th Sutta of the Long Discourse of the Buddha, the Diga Nikaya, and it is where the Buddha, his last journey, and he lays down the things that he wants, the Sangha and the Buddhist community to remember after his passing away. And there he also says that uh, after my passing away, uh, you should take refuge in the Dhamma that I have taught. What is that? It is the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. Uh, these are the 37 aids to awakening here. And this is like a summary of all the various teachings that he has given her. If you look at those 37 aids to awakening, uh, what you find in there, the majority of those teachings are about mental cultivation. Uh, the last three factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, right action, not action, right effort, uh, right meditation, right mindfulness, uh, and right stillness, right samadhi at the very end. Uh, so that is another very good pointer to what is real Buddhism. If it is about mental cultivation, uh, and cultivation here means developing good qualities, abandoning bad ones, that's really what it comes back to. If it is about that, uh, it is likely to be very closely related to early teachings, to what the Buddha taught. Uh, and that gives us a very nice guidance right there about what real Buddhism is about. Yeah? Real Buddhism, and this is something you see actually in many, many places in the suttas, uh, real Buddhism are those teachings uh, that lead you, when you practice them, to better personal qualities uh, and a reduction in bad personal qualities. Uh. So any teachings that lead you in that direction, uh, build up the good things uh, and lead to a decline in the bad things within you, uh, those are likely, uh, possibly, uh, <laughs> Not always, but uh, possibly uh, if one way of judging uh, whether something is an authentic Buddhist teaching or not. Uh, that is kind of a broad overview. So come back to those early suttas of Buddhism. Uh, so what is it uh, that the Buddha taught? Uh, if the Buddha says, uh, my teachings are primary because this is the gold standard for everything else, how do we know what the Buddha taught? Uh, and fortunately, we have very good reasons to think that we know pretty much exactly what the Buddha taught. And this can be done through uh, historical studies of the suttas, through inquiry into what unifies the Dhamma in certain ways. And what unifies the Dhamma, the early Buddhism, is that there are certain ideas that are propounded or explained there. There's a certain kind of language that is used. The Pali language changes over time. The Pali language of the suttas is one kind of Pali. Later Pali is slightly different. The grammar is a certain way. The uh, the kind of the feeling of the language uh, yeah, is, uh, has a certain feel to it and that changes over time. Uh, for example, if you read English language and you compare modern English to the language of uh, uh, Shakespeare, very different kind of language. Uh, yeah? But even the language of Dickens, uh, which is only about 150 years ago, uh, is actually quite different uh, from modern English. Uh, you feel that you're entering a different period. Uh, and it's, of course, all languages are the same. It's exactly the same thing with Pali. You can feel that you're entering different eras of the use of the Pali language. All you have to do is to read Pali. <laughs> so you have to trust me, right? So do you trust me? So I... Uh... <laughs> 
So, but these are things that can be figured out. That's the point. Uh, they can be investigated. They can be understood. Uh, and it's possible to point out what are the early Dhamma and what is the later. What is the real teaching of the Buddha? And of course, you all know probably what it comes down to. It comes down to the four main Nikayas of Buddhism, the long discourse, the middle discourse, the connected discourse, and the numerical discourses. Diga Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya, Sangyutta Nikaya, and Anguttara Nikaya. Those are really the main things. You can add a bit from that, subtract a bit from that. That gives you a very kind of good starting point uh, for deciding what real Buddhism is. You can add the Dhammapada to that because Dhammapada is such a beautiful collection. Uh, so to get a bit of inspiration, you can add a bit of monastic rules to that, the Patimokha rules of the monks, these kind of things. Uh, but you have a good starting point right there. Uh. So uh, that is a good starting point. Uh. So... Um, uh, but uh, there is even deeper way in which to understand the Dhamma. I, I have to apologize for talking a bit fast today, but I, I think what happens is that when I've been giving so many teachings, uh, after a while, I, you get a bit tired, and when I get tired, I speak fast. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, that's what happens to me. I kind of lose my kind of cool or whatever. But anyway, that's what, what happens. Uh, so um, the uh, thing uh, actually goes beyond this. Uh, and one way of thinking about the Dhamma is that we can also think about the Dhamma not just in terms of collection of books, yeah, but how to recognize the Dhamma again from the result that they actually give in your practice. And sometimes the Buddha does exactly this. He gives you teachings. And he gave the teaching one to Mahapajapati Gotami, uh, yeah, the Buddha's stepmother who became one of the first Arahant Bhikkhunis, maybe the first one. Uh, and then also to Venerable Upali. When Upali was the barber of the Sakyans. Uh, and he went forth and he became the number one expert on the Vinaya, the monastic discipline, the monastic regulations. Uh, and so both of them, they went to the Buddha and they ask him, how do we recognize the real Buddhist teachings? And um, because I can't remember verbatim what those things are, I have them on my laptop. So this is uh, one of my few attachments in my life is my laptop, because uh, my excuse is the Dhamma is there, so I've got to, got to have it with me here. <laughs> so this is uh, the Buddha's advice to Mahapajapati Gotami. Yeah? And he says, Gotami, you might know that certain things lead to, and then all these things do lead to. And this is then the summary of his teachings. They lead to dispassion, not to passion. Yeah, so passion is this feeling of desire, really. It comes back to desire. It leads to the coolness of the mind. Dispassion is a cool mind. Desire is a hot mind. Yeah? Desire is all of these attachments and, uh, and involvement with the world. Dispassion is like standing back, being cool, observing what is going on. This is one of the ways in which you recognize the real Dhamma. It leads to being unfettered, not fettered. Fetter is a bind, binding, it's like a rope, it binds you to the world. And you can feel sometimes the mind withdraws from the attachments of the world. Yeah, you're no longer bound to things in the world, bound to whatever it might be. But you feel that you are released. The world no longer has a hold on you. It's like whatever happens in the world, actually you can be cool about that. You don't have to be involved. You don't have to suffer as a consequence of the changes in the world, including changes in your family. Yeah, one of the most difficult things in the world is to deal with changes in the family when people get sick, when they die, and these kind of things. But if you are really 
unfettered, you're really untied to the world, you can deal with those things as well in a reasonable way. This gives you an idea that Buddhism is quite profound, withdrawing the attachments and the cravings in that world. It leads to dispersal, not accumulation. Not sure about dispersal. <laughs> this is, uh, I shall not name the, uh, the translator, because, uh, but uh, dispersal means like giving up, right? Uh, not the opposite of accumulation. Uh, this is another thing. You see that some people are great accumulators in life, uh, but people who are uh, on the path in a very deep way, uh, they want to give things up because they realize all of this accumulation actually just clutters the mind and it clutters your life and it makes life more complicated. Uh, so they tend to give things up. Uh, and this is why you see, like, if you have a really, really, some of these really good monastics, uh, they have nothing. Uh, yeah, they have very, very few things. They don't even have a laptop. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that to me is like a miracle, right? How is that possible? But, uh, uh, but I remember that someone like my very good friend Bhante Sujato, I remember many years ago he was staying at Bodhinana Monastery. Huh? And one day he was leaving Bodhinana Monastery. Huh? And all he had, he, this were all his belongings, yeah? He had nothing else. A shoulder bag, that was it. Huh? And he walked out of the monastery, kind of into the uh, sunset or whatever it is that you walk <laughs> off into. Huh? And that was really cool, right? I think he may have had a laptop in that shoulder bag, but uh, <laughs> but at least it was only one shoulder bag, right? And actually it is very inspiring when you see that, uh, because you get this feeling of lightness, of actually being unburdened, not holding on to things in the world, uh, living in a very simple way. Uh, and I, I must admit, I don't live up fully to that standard. I, uh, I have too many books in my queue. I did bring some books, by the way, at an no? Yeah, you saw them there? Okay, good. That was my unburdening. I passed them on to burden someone else instead. <laughs> no, but for a monastery, I think it's good. A monastery, I can have a few books. Yeah, that's, that's all right. Yeah, thank you for agreeing. <laughs> okay, the next one is... Fewness of desires, uh, not more desires, uh, right? You don't actually want very much in the world. Uh, you kind of you are you live simply and you're happy with that. Uh, very related to that is the idea of contentment, uh, not being discontent. Uh, yeah, the idea that you have enough, uh, you are satisfied with the way things are, uh, and you work with that, and that is okay. Uh, remember that beautiful verse in the Dhammapada where the Buddha says, uh, "Contentment is the highest wealth." Uh, because if you don't need anything more, that means that you are wealthy enough. But if you are really, really wealthy, but you need more, well, you're not wealthy enough. So that, that reason, contentment is the highest wealth. It's a beautiful little uh, saying right there, straight from the Dhammapada. Dhammapada is a very inspiring little book. It leads to seclusion, not to crowding or not to socializing. Yeah, The Dhamma, if you live it in the right way, it leads to Wanting to be by yourself, uh, wanting to enjoy your own company, uh, wanting to be peaceful by yourself. Uh, it is another indication that you're dealing with a real Dhamma. Dhamma where there's too much crowding, too much going on, too much socializing is uh, okay in the beginning, uh, but is not where the Dhamma leads to down the track. Uh. It leads to being unburdensome, uh, not being burdensome. Uh. Yeah, it is, uh, I think... Uh, uh, subaru, baro is burden in Pali. Subaru means easy, an easy burden on the world. Uh, you don't demand very much of the people around you. Uh, yeah, if you are a monastic, you don't really look for much from the, in terms of support. Uh, 
And I have to admit that the lay people are amazing. I'm always asked, is anything you need? Uh, and 90% of the time, at least, I have to say, well, thank you very much, but actually, can I give you something instead? Because uh, <laughs> I have too many things, usually. Because people are so beautiful, they always give you things. It's one of those most wonderful things about being a Buddhist monk, is that people's kindness really comes out yeah, when you're a Buddhist monk. They always want to support you, to do things for you. Uh, and that is so wonderful. Uh, and uh, all kinds of people, yeah, people who are not even Buddhist, uh, are kind to you when you're a Buddhist monk. Yeah. Happened to me many times. Uh. And it's a wonderful thing, but it's also very wonderful as a monk to be able to say, I really appreciate your kindness. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh. So never feel upset if a monk or a nun doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, accept your generosity. Uh. Or because all it means is that actually I'm already content. I have enough. Uh. And sometimes instead rejoice uh, when they say, that actually I don't need anything else. Uh, because it's a sign of contentment, a sign of being unburdensome. Uh, and that is also often very beautiful. Uh. And sometimes as a monastic, you, you receive things, you you'd accept it, uh, just to pass it on to another monastic, right? That's also kind of a nice thing to do. Uh. And uh, so this is kind of how you unburdensome is one of these beautiful qualities. Uh. So this is what the Buddha said to Mahapajapati. And you can see these are all very spiritual values, right? And then he says, you should definitely bear in mind that these things are the teaching. These things are the training. These things are the teacher's instruction. That gives you a beautiful idea. So in other words, it's not necessarily always about suttas. You don't have to actually teach from the suttas necessarily to be teaching, giving good teachings. If you teach according to these ideas here, then you are on the right track. And I want to finish off with just a little bit about that. How should we teach in the modern world? Should we always quote the suttas? Is that necessary? Can we sometimes talk about different things? What should the relationship be between the suttas and how we teach? Now, one of the things to remember, one of the things that I always found interesting, if you look at some of the greatest Buddhist masters in the world, especially in places like Thailand, I think about people like Ajahn Shah, Mm, yeah, okay, no, no picture of him here. Uh, Ajahn Shah, who was, of course, Ajahn Brahm's teacher, regarded by many as the greatest meditation master in Thailand in the 20th century. Uh, a very, very powerful person. From what I, I never met him, but from what people say and from you know, the feeling you get about him. Uh, and yet, when you listen to the teachings of someone like Ajahn Shah, he never really quotes from the suttas. Uh, and the reason for that is very simple. He didn't know any suttas. Uh, yeah? so, <laughs> so it's kind of straightforward. Uh, uh, so, but still, his teachings were considered very, very powerful. Uh, and many people who practiced according to these teachings got very powerful results. Ajahn Brahm, of course, being one of those people. Uh, Ajahn Brahm today is probably one of the preeminent meditators anywhere in the world. Uh, he is also extraordinary. I've known Ajahn Brahm for 30 years, uh, and I never seem to be amazed by Ajahn Brahm and some of his qualities. Uh, Usually you start to get a bit kind of, you look down upon people after having been with them for so long. But <laughs> you know what it's like? Familiarity breeds contempt, you know, the old saying. But for me, over time, my respect for Ajahn Brahm is always growing. And this is kind of weird. I think it's because I am getting wiser over time. I'm not saying I'm very wise, but I used to be even more unwise, believe it or not, than I am now. So it's kind of, that's the, that's the issue here. And so 
sometimes they teach things that don't refer to the suttas at all. That can actually be very powerful if that person understands what they are talking about, if that person has been, has been given good teachings from their teachers. And of course, that is the point. point is that Ajahn Shah, he had good teachers himself, like Ajahn Manna. And so sometimes there is a lineage that does not really go back to the suttas very much. Actually, Ajahn Man, he did use the suttas. And that is kind of what is interesting here. Because Ajahn Man, because he didn't really have any uh, teachers very, very much in terms of the forest tradition and these kind of things, uh, he actually went to the city. Uh, and he asked people in the city, well, what are the teachings? What should I practice? Uh, so in that way, the suttas actually crept into the forest tradition from the sidelines uh, and then actually got practiced in the right way after all. Uh, so they're not entirely devoid of suttas, but at the same time, the suttas were very often not mentioned at all. And so this is what we should be doing also in the present day. We don't always have to mention the suttas, but whatever we do teach should always be in line with the suttas. It shouldn't be contrary to how the Buddha taught. And sometimes I think it is important that we update our language a little bit, uh, that we use certain modern ideas to kind of explain the Dhamma from a modern point of view, uh, so that actually we can deal with modern problems. Uh, how do we deal with the war in Ukraine? How do we think about that in a way that actually is beneficial for us, uh, that doesn't lead to depression and sadness? Uh, how do we deal with things like climate change uh, in a way that accords with the Buddhist teachings? Uh, and I have talked about these things before. I think it's very important to deal with that. Uh, how do we think about modern psychology in terms of uh, in connection with the Buddha's teachings? Uh, yeah, because, mod because Buddhism also is a kind of psychology. Uh, how does it match with our modern outlook? Yeah? And all of these things can be very interesting uh, if we present them in a way that accords with the teachings of the Buddha, uh, that does not deviate from kind of the ideas that the Buddha himself gave. Uh. And so I think we should... Uh, find this balance in our life. Yes, I love to quote the suttas, and I love the suttas, because to me they're very powerful and beautiful. But I also like to bring in contemporary ideas at the same time. And so it is this balance in Buddhism, sometimes moving to the suttas, sometimes thinking about the contemporary issues, and then merging these things in a beautiful way to bring out the Dhamma in a contemporary way that is relevant to modern society, that is relevant to modern people. We don't get too stuck in the past, but we also don't forget the profound wisdom of the past and bring that with us into the future and into the present. So there you are. Um, I, I didn't know I was going to talk so long, but anyway, so there, that's kind of what happens. We start talking. Just, and uh, so a few thoughts for you about uh, what is real Buddhism, how to teach real Buddhism. And uh, hopefully that will be uh, helpful for you. Uh, and if it is not helpful, now is your chance to ask questions uh, and to complain and to do whatever. <laughs> okay, so please feel free to ask questions if you have any. And uh, also to, uh, if you want to challenge anything I've said, you're very welcome to do that as well, of course. Mm. Hi there. 
Thank you for your talk. Hi, yes, you're welcome. I just want to get your um, opinion or idea on um, free will and whether we had it and where it sits in Buddhism. Okay. Uh, yeah, so th this is actually a very large topic, yeah, and uh, really it deserves a talk on its own right. So are you ready for an hour's talk? <laughs> I have talked about this actually before uh, online, it's available, and about free will and the kind of how it works for Buddhism. And the, uh, the Buddhist teaching is largely about the idea that we are conditioned uh, through our past, uh, yeah? And uh, that conditioning will tend to form who we are as human beings, and including what we choose, uh, yeah? We cannot really choose our choices. Uh, our choices are largely determined by past conditioning here. Uh, but then, uh, of course, uh, when we talk about determination in that, that way, it does not mean the classical uh, determinism of Western philosophy, where, where the future is completely predetermined. The future must go this way. Our choices matter in what happens for the future. Uh, and that is a difference between the Buddhist idea of determinism, if there is such a thing, uh, compared to the kind of classical uh, Western ideas of determinism, which says the regardless of what you do, what you do is irrelevant. The future is set already. What you do is not irrelevant at all. It matters enormously in how the future unfolds. Uh, and so our choices are largely very, very strongly conditioned. And it's not hard to see that. I mean, I look back on my life 30 years ago, and I started, it felt at the time that I had free will. But when I look back, I realized actually I was very trapped in my mindset and all of those kind of things. Uh, but uh, you also, in the present, you also bring in the knowledge that you have now, right? In this moment right now, yes, all the conditioning from the past. But wait a minute. I also have Buddhism coming into my life over the last few decades. Uh, I've just been reading these suttas. These are now conditioning my mind right now. So let me stop for a second and ask, what should be my choice right now? Uh, and so you, this is how you break that past conditioning, by stopping uh, and allowing the present conditioning to come in. Uh, does that mean that there is free will? Well, that is another question. Maybe it doesn't mean that, uh, but it actually allows you still to come out of your old conditioning and not be trapped by it. Uh, so whether there is a real free will or not is kind of a moot point in Buddhism. It's very hard to really kind of come down one side or the other on that particular point. Uh, but uh, there is another way of thinking about freedom of will in Buddhism. And this to me is by far more interesting here. And this is the idea that our choices are limited in the present. Uh, yeah? So let's say that you have free will. So what can you choose between? Well, you can only choose between those things that you know about. Uh, and what you know about is incredibly limited. You are limited by your defilements. You are limited by your delusion. You are limited by your points of view and your perceptions of the world, uh, which are all formed in a certain way. So you can choose at lunch today between, I don't know, an apple and a pear. Uh, big deal, right? <laughs> You cannot choose things that you don't know about. Uh, if I say to you, choose to enter into the deep state of meditation, you haven't got that choice. For people who are not Buddhist, uh, for people who have no idea about spiritual teachings, that choice is completely out of their mind because they have no idea that these things even exist. Uh, if you are a Buddhist, you can start to lean in that direction. Uh, and then gradually you can develop your mind, you can get rid of the delusion, you can get rid of those defilements that block you from getting access to those things. Uh, and eventually, you may be able to choose those things. Uh, and when you're able to choose deep meditation, you realize, this is what I should be doing all along. Uh, but you didn't have access to them. There's no way you could make that choice, uh, because basically your mind wasn't ready for it. Uh, 
And that is the biggest problem in the world. Freedom of choice is limited because of our delusion, because of our defilement, because of our lack of understanding. We don't even know that these insights and meditations are possible, so how can we possibly choose them? That is the real issue. So ordinary freedom of will, whether you can you know, drink um, you know, water, warm water or cold water, or have a pear or an apple, who cares about that kind of freedom of will? What we really need to do is take away the limitations on our minds, the kind of the barriers to seeing the world in the right way. Then we can make choices we never could do before. That is the real issue of freedom of the will, and that is the issue we should focus on now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, John. Thanks for the inspiring talk. Yeah. Uh, the online question. Is listening to Dharma talk throughout our daily activity bad? When will listening become a hindrance in regards to yeah. during an activity? Okay, that's a very good question. I, my, my good friend Bhante Sajato, he, he writes on this blog, it's kind of a Sutta Central blog yeah, where they talk about suttas and things like that, and he had this article there that he wrote, and his article, the title of his article was, You are listening to too many Dhamma talks. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, wow, and that is very insightful because there is a tendency for people to listen to Dhamma talk as if it is kind of lift music, you elevate the, elevate the music, right? It's kind of in the background, always kind of humming in the background. Uh, but uh, that is not really how we should listen to the Dhamma. We should listen to the Dhamma, giving it full attention, uh, trying to understand what is going on, trying to bring it into our heart in such a way that it actually has meaning in our life. Yeah? That is really how we should deal with the Dhamma. And if it is always in the background, uh, very often you don't doesn't really have any benefit. Yeah? It doesn't really, don't really take it on board. And it kind of, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not ideal. And after a while, you don't never listen to the Dhamma properly anymore because you're so used to kind of having it humming in the background. You're so used to listening in that way that you are incapable of really attending properly to the Dhamma talk. Yeah. So I would say much more important to listen to Dhamma talk once in a while, especially when you need it. Uh, yeah. Read the suttas, maybe before you go to bed in the evening, so you can, have, you can dream about suttas at night. Uh. <laughs> That is a sign of a real Buddhist, the one who dreams about suttas at night. Yeah, avidja pachya sankara. <laughs> kind of, can't imagine that one. That would be really cool. So listen to the suttas properly. Try to understand what is going on. Reflect on those suttas. The person is there in that camera. Is that right? That's where. Okay. Hi. Okay. So. <laughs> So, and then you are really doing it in the right way. Uh, the Buddha talks about this in the suttas many different places. Uh, listen with an open heart, not an open heart, listen with a lending an ear. Uh, try your very best to understand, reflect on it afterwards, and allow your view of the world and your view of yourself to be affected by this. So actually you change in a proper way. That is the right way to listen to the Dhamma. So, uh, yes, indeed, you can listen to too many Dhamma talks. And yes, so it's a very good question. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and I think it is very, uh, it's a very appropriate thing to actually ask about. So, yes. Ajahn, is there anything to watch out for if one tells the fake Dhamma? Or is that Musavada? It's, it's not Musavada. It's only Musavada if you know that it is fake, yeah? And if you know it is fake and you kind of present it as real, that is very, actually very bad. It's one of the worst kind of musavada. 
yeah because uh, you know okay you don't need the buddha said you don't need to be moral yeah just kind of do whatever you want if you say that kind of thing yeah it is really really bad news because you're using the name of the buddha to present wrong teachings uh, so uh, but it, it's also important to do one's best to investigate yeah if you have doubt about something don't just say it because someone else has said it uh, and trust your own judgment. Uh, a lot of people in the world, they come across as very confident. They have no reason to be confident at all, but they come across as very confident. Uh, and so investigate uh, and make sure that you do your best to find out whether something really is the word of the Buddha or not. Then you are doing the right thing here, really doing the right thing here. And uh, yes. It is time to go? All right. Uh, yeah, okay, it's time to, we are told by the masters that it's time to go, so uh, <laughs> wonderful to see you all again, and it's nice to see some old faces, I see Ken at the back there, where is your good, good wife, is she, she Malaysia. in Malaysia, all right, okay, she's missing out, okay, and I saw Brendan at the back there as well, nice to see you Brendan, it's cool, <laughs> so yeah, so wonderful to see you all, and uh, so many familiar faces, and uh, I will be leaving again this afternoon. Uh, and uh, maybe if uh, if the kind of if life holds up uh, and there are no more COVID pandemics, maybe we'll see you again sometime in the future. We'll see what happens. Uh, so, uh, so shall we just pay respect to the Buddha Dham Sangha? Let's do the Arahang Sambuddha together. Yeah. Yeah. Arahang Sama Sambuddho Bhagava Udhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Smakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Sufati Pano Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namami Thank <laughs> you.